Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy, and this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 5, Things That Make You Go Hmm. Sometimes we get Dear Cheap Astronomy questions, where all we can do is sit down with a cup of tea and go hmm. There's no point in booting up Wikipedia, scanning archive, or even passing the question to someone else, because a definitive answer just isn't out there. But we can, of course, speculate. So first here's Barry speculating on what we are yet to discover about the world's most famous scalar field fluctuation. Dear Cheap Astronomy, So, what's your take on the Higgs boson? The July 2012 announcement of the Higgs boson was made with an appropriate degree of caution. The good folks at the Large Hadron Collider reported they had found a new particle in the energy range that corresponded to the range predicted for the Higgs boson. This is exciting and worthy of the worldwide press coverage that it got. But there is no direct evidence that this new particle is what gives things the property of mass. So, sure, it's a new boson, but the Higgs boson? That's yet to be determined. It's as though we have arrested someone who was at the crime scene at the time of the murder, but are yet to positively identify their fingerprints, or their DNA, on the murder weapon. So it's reasonable that we detain this particle, question it and refuse it bail, but the case of the prosecution requires further development before we can establish a conviction. The predicted energy range of the Higgs boson comes from consideration of what the smallest possible excitation of the hypothetical Higgs field would be. The concept of the smallest possible excitation is a central tenet of quantum mechanics. Any energetic event that takes place in the universe can be deconstructed down to its simplest and most basic components. The photons being produced from the heating of a metallic filament in a flashlight globe represent the smallest possible excitation of the electromagnetic field. Photons are electromagnetic bosons. But although they are the smallest possible excitation, there are still certain energy ranges within these smallest possible excitations which produce anything from radio waves to gamma rays. In a similar way, the smallest possible excitation of the theoretical Higgs field is a Higgs boson, and there could well be a range of Higgs boson energies. After all, different fundamental particles do have different masses, which aren't obviously multiples of a single unit. So there might be light Higgs bosons and heavy Higgs bosons, just like there are radio wave photons and gamma ray photons. This is what happens after great moments in science. We can go crazy for a while with wild speculations. A whole new field of inquiry has opened up, of which we know so little. Of course, the really interesting part of the whole Higgs picture is the Higgs field. Allegedly, it's a scalar field that pervades the whole universe, and which acts like treacle on anything that has Higgs boson-related mass. But the field has no effect at all on photons, or any other massless particles. This means the Higgs field is not the same as space-time, which, when curved, can alter the path of photons and even prevent them from moving at all, in the case of a black hole. But perhaps the Higgs field does play some role in the relativistic scenario of a spacecraft accelerating up toward light speed, but never managing to get to that speed as its relativistic mass grows towards infinity. 
Is this, in some way, a cumulative treacle effect, meaning that we can push a massive particle through the resistant Higgs field so much, but no further? Who knows? A new door has opened. We should all go forth and ask questions, none of which should be considered dumb. And this is Barry Howarth signing off from another cheap astronomy snippet. I hope you enjoyed the sound of a jet cat sailing past on the Brisbane River, not to mention all the waves that came in a little bit later. I don't know whether this qualifies as a nice uh, analogy to do with Higgs bosons and mass and drag through scalar fields or anything, but I proffer that as a possibility. And thanks, Barry. It is occasionally worth reminding ourselves that just because we've discovered something doesn't mean we instantly know everything about it. And now, continuing with the theme of speculative physics, here's Dharani to talk through one of the many problems associated with an also famous, but entirely fictional, public transport device. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What would happen if a Star Trek transporter transported me from the equator to the North Pole. Isn't there a conservation of angular momentum problem? Wow, great question. Yes, it's true that a whole bunch of physics problems arise if you try to imagine a device that can deconstruct all the information about your physical presence, transmit that information to a distant location, and then decode the information back into physical manifestation. So yes, If a transporter was to transport information about the relative momentum of a person at their origin on the equator to a distant location at either of the Earth's poles, then upon rematerialization, that person would be flung laterally to crash violently through the wall of the transporter bay. This is because, relatively speaking, an object at the equator is rotating laterally at 1,500 kilometers per hour while an object standing at either of the geographic poles only needs the tiniest of motion to achieve a complete rotation once every day. In fact, you can face a similar problem in transporting someone from an orbiting spacecraft down to the surface of a planet, which is a more familiar Star Trek transportation scenario. For example, to maintain a geostationary orbit, your spacecraft would need to move at a velocity of about 11,000 kilometers an hour. So if you transported from that geostationary 11,000 kilometer an hour orbit down onto the surface that is moving no more than 1,500 kilometers an hour, yeah, that will also see you flung through the walls of the transporter bay. Of course, you could program the transporter so that it didn't carry any information about a person's intrinsic momentum. But that might not work out well, since your cardiovascular system would then have to restart itself from a static state your heart needing to push very hard to restart the flow of a whole 5 liters of adult blood volume, with the first few pumps being vital to reinfuse the heart muscle with fresh oxygen, and subsequent pumps then desperately working to reoxygenate your brain, as well as clearing out the CO2 that will accumulate while you are freaking out that your blood has stopped circulating. And, of course... Instructing your transporter to transfer a person with no lateral momentum down to a part of the planet that is moving at 1,500 kilometers an hour 
will also see that person flung through a different wall of the transporter bay. Notwithstanding, that person may be experiencing a heart attack, as well as cerebral hypoxia and acidosis while they are being flung. So, if a Star Trek-style transportation is really going to work, we will need to program transporters to ensure that they always mind your surroundings. They will need to initially assess the inertial frame of reference that you are transporting from, and also assess the inertial frame of reference that you are transporting to, and then mathematically adjust your intrinsic momentum settings so that you will fit comfortably into your distant location's inertial frame of reference without you being flung through any of the walls of the transporter bay. Of course, once you have a machine that can readjust your intrinsic physical settings to allow you to be transformed to fit within a different inertial frame of reference, you pretty much have the makings of an anti-gravity machine and quite possibly a time machine. Good luck with that. And thanks, Darny. So, yep, even assuming you could transport someone to a distant location, getting them to remain on the transporter pad afterwards will be a whole separate problem. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've ever had cause to suddenly stop in your tracks and go, hmm, why not send us that thought and let us go hmm for you? This is Steve Nerlich. Thanks for listening.